This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm your co-host, Kara ong And this is uh, Kyle Kondik, Managing Editor of Saturday's Crystal Ball. And before we get started today, we're going to ask you if you'd please just take a moment to give us a rating wherever you get this podcast and help us out. Make sure it's a good rating too. <laughs> yeah, we, we only Although want we're, ratings of we're five happy, or above. We're happy to <laughs> take five. we're happy to take whatever feedback you give us. And if you send us an email, goodpoliticsofvirginia.edu, we promise we will read it um, and we will probably reply to it unless it's really nasty. Then sometimes we let those ones go, but. <laughs> Well, um, if anybody actually sticks around until the end of the podcast, when we thank you for listening, um, you might have heard that we would also take your voice recordings too and feature you on an episode. Again, if it's positive and you want to share your your positive ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Negative ones, not going to be featured. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> So, Kyle, we've been discussing how this election year is different from previous midterm election years when the party that holds the White House is often punished. Um, The 2022 midterm election, uh, you've noted this week, features both an unpopular president and also indications that the unpopular president's party won't be strongly punished. Um, As we're recording this at the end of September, Joe Biden's disapproval rating on average is in the low 50s and his approval rating is in the low 40s. So, so quite low. Um, how do you see echoes from 1978 and 1982 reverberating in 2022? And what lessons can we learn from those midterm elections? Yeah, you know, I've, I've been trying to look for some historical analogs to what we're seeing this year, which is that I think, you know, Republicans could still very well have a good election. And, you know, it does, it's not going to take much for them to flip both the House and the Senate. I mean, the House, I think they're still favored in and the Senate is, is, is a legitimate toss up. But, you know, we've become accustomed in the last several midterm cycles to having these really big waves, um, you know, against uh, consistently against the uh, the president's party. And so, you know, when you've got a president at Biden's approval rating, which, you know, as you mentioned, is is, is pretty low, is pretty similar to like where Donald Trump was in uh, in 2018 or where Barack Obama was in, in 2010 or George W. Bush in 2006. Obama's approval in 2010 was a little bit better than it was in 14, um, but it was still kind of broadly negative and kind of going the wrong direction as we got closer to, to that election. Um, but, but, you know, the, these midterms are not always like obvious big waves and it, there's not always a ton of seat change in favor of the non-presidential party. You know, some years end up as ripples. And so I looked at 1978, 1982 in part because both Jimmy Carter was president in 78 and then Ronald Reagan was president in 82 for the first of his two midterms. Um, they both were unpopular. Um, Carter got a, got approval, did, did get better toward the election. Um, the signing of the Camp David Accords um, might have played a role in that. That happened in mid-September of 1978. But Carter's approval was fairly weak through a lot, a lot of his presidency, including uh, a significant part of 1978. Um, and Reagan was unpopular at the time of the uh, 1982 midterm. And yet you could look back at those elections and people felt this way at the time, but also in, in hindsight that, you know, you know, the, the Republicans, the out-of-power party in 1978, and the Democrats, the out-of-power party in 1982, they maybe didn't do quite as well as you maybe would have thought that they did. And so then you ask yourself, well, why did that happen? And, you know, there are a lot of different factors that go into it. One of them is simply that, particularly in the Senate, we talk about this a lot, the makeup of the seats being contested is really important. 
Um, and we think we've previously noted, you know, the Republicans are defending 21 of the 35 seats that are on the ballot this year. It's just harder to gain when you're defending, um, you know, more seats yourself. And um, if you look at both 78 and 82, the um, the president's party did, was was not at that much of a disadvantage in terms of the Senate races in those um, in, in, in those particular years. Um, and so that just is just a structural part of these elections that I wanted to kind of uh, suss out and explain, um, because. You know, if you just look at 2022 in a nutshell, um, you know, you you might you you, you know you might not uh, you know realize those sorts of factors, but they've you know we've seen them before in previous elections. You know, typically there's not not all things are unprecedented. You know, in in, in elections, um, and I just you know if in fact it's sort of a muddy outcome, um, I wanted to sort of point out that we've had some muddy outcomes in in past midterms. So you've already started uh, presaging my my next question. Uh, you you break down you know that there's three classes of Senate seats, and as a reminder to our listeners, there's there's three classes of Senate seats. So that way there'd be um, alternate years in which uh, different senators would be up for elect. Class three is the group of Senate seats being contested this year, um, and and your argument is that because of the makeup of the seats on the ballot, the opposition party isn't likely to make big gains. So there's these structural reasons for why. I wonder if you can talk a little bit though about the differences between each class of Senate seats and how it might provide either advantage or vulnerability to the parties uh, in each election that they're running. Yeah, so it's interesting that so we've got the three Senate classes. Obviously, the Senate is tied fifty fifty, but the, the the composition of the three Senate classes are actually all three of them are like relatively lopsided. Um, you've got um, the the class that's going to be up in twenty twenty four that was last on the ballot in um, in twenty eighteen. Um, the uh, the Democrats have this huge advantage on it. Um, it, it it's uh, uh, there are th- thirty three seats, and I think it's twenty three to ten um, Democratic. If you include the two independents who caucus with Democrats, uh, Angus King of Maine and Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who are both going to be on the ballot again in twenty twenty four. Um, the three Trump state Democrats in the Senate. Uh, John Tester of Montana, um, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and Sherrod Brown of Ohio are also on that class. And so looming in the background here is a really difficult map for Democrats. But then on the other two maps, the Republicans have an advantage, um, in, in, including on, on this one, where there, there are a couple of special elections. Um, I think in the, uh, the, the regularly contested uh, Senate races this year, I think it's uh, um, 20 to 14 Republican. And so, you know, the Republicans have just done you know, better than than Democrats on on this particular map in recent elections. And, you know, if you go back, if you like go back in six year increments, you could see sort of how that works. So the last time this Senate group was on the ballot was 2016. You know, Donald Trump won the election that year. Democrats made a small gain in the Senate, but not enough to flip it. Six years before that was 2010, Republican wave year. Six years before that was 2004 when George W. Bush got elected. So the Republicans have had consistently pretty good elections on this map. If you look at the map on on the ballot in 2024, go back to 2012, Obama gets reelected. 2006, Democratic wave. 2000, um, Democrats actually did pretty well in the Senate that year, even though George W. Bush won the presidency in basically the closest presidential race in, in, you know, in, modern, in modern history, given what the margin was in Florida and all the disputes about Florida. And you know, if you go back and look at like 
the Senate classes and those, uh, particularly the 82 election, the Democrats had been having good election after good election on that map. Um, 76, Carter won. Um, 1970 was was uh, Nixon's midterm. And, um, you know, but then if you go before that, 64 and 58, those two years are two of the best elections Democrats have basically ever had. Um, so, you know, they, <laughs> it's hard to have a really good election on a Senate map when you've already had a bunch of good elections on it. Um, and so that's what Republicans are kind of facing in this particular Senate race. Again, that's not that's not necessarily going to prevent them from winning the Senate, but it is kind of a just a structural problem for Republicans that um, you know that 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 they have just had to face this year. So the other thing, and I'll drop a link in the episode notes for our listeners. I also went back and uh, Jeff Jeffrey Skelly, who used to be with the Crystal Ball and is now with Five Thirty Eight, um, actually did a little rundown about um, the Senate class population imbalance back in twenty fourteen. Um, and one of the things he noted was just sort of the imbalance among the class uh, among the classes of senators um, in terms of their representation of the population do you see um, so for class three it's um, it's the largest class it has 34 senators compared to 33 in the other two um, there's you know it is roughly um, representative of the population so um, it has it represents about uh, 72.6% of the population. Um, I'm wondering if there is anything that you're thinking about um, in terms of class three in, in terms of its representativeness and in terms of the, the, the states in which there might be more competition kind of also playing a role in, into the outcome. Yeah, if I remember correctly from that piece, um, the, the class that was on the ballot in 2020 is by far the least representative because I think that was also the case in 2014. Part of it is that it doesn't have um, it, it doesn't have some of the big states on it. So I know you know California, of course, is the biggest state. California does not have a it, it does have a Senate Senate a seat on the ballot this time um, and will in 2024, but did not in in 2020. And so that's a piece of it. Um, but also, if memory serves, I think the 2020 map is also sort of functionally the most Republican leaning in that you've got really a lot of red states that are just on the ballot in that uh, in that particular year. Um, the other two maps are a little bit more uh, mixed in terms of that regard, and they're also sort of more representative of the public in that in in um, in in in, uh, in 2022 and 2024 a greater percentage of the overall public will be voting in a Senate race. Whereas on the other map, it's just a, it's a smaller number. So it's just kind of part of the, the randomness of these Senate elections, but it also just is a, is a reminder too, that like, you know, the house, all the seats are on the ballot every two years, everyone votes for the house every two years. Um, but the, the Senate not only is, um, you know, is quote malapportioned in the sense that, uh, you know, the small States get, um, you know, the, the people who live in this in the small states are sort of overrepresented in the Senate, um, but also just the mix of seat, seats that are up every year. And it's it's part of the reason, too, that like the president's party almost always loses ground in the House in midterms. It's a little more mixed in the Senate, um, again, because of the I think the sort of randomness of what seats are on the ballot and what years and what the conditions are in those years um, is, is a big part of that. Do we know what the demographic makeup of voters are relative in in terms of representation between the classes? That is a good question. Um, you know, my guess is that the um, the 2020 map is probably the least diverse, um, but 
I don't quite know about that. You know, it does have Texas on it and Texas is, um, Texas is ex- extremely diverse. Um, it does not have California. It also does not have Florida. Um, and you know, those are, you know, two of the three most populous states and, and, and a couple of the most diverse states. So my guess is that the, the 2020 map is, um, is the least diverse, but I have not looked at that specifically. It's a, sounds like a good topic for a future crystal ball article. This year is also a big year for outside spending. In fact, in 2022, outside groups together, I checked this today, have already spent more than all the candidates in 54 races, according to tracking that's done by the Center for Responsive Politics. And that includes Senate races in Alabama, Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Missouri, North Carolina, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Um, You actually wrote um, in your piece for the Crystal Ball this week um, that, you know, that outside spending was also, you know, a factor in 1982. Um, uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how outside spending might impact the elections this year. Yeah, there was some belief in 82 that, and, you know, the outside spending structure is a lot different now than it was back in the 70s and 80s um, uh, for various kind of complicated campaign finance reasons. But, you know, the the fact that we have these huge outside spending groups on both sides spending, you know, a ton of money in House and Senate races, it just didn't used to be that way. Um, I think the, the Citizens United decision and also the, I think it's speech, the speech now decision um, that kind of opened the floodgates a little bit for, you know, some of the, the big big outside groups like Congressional Leadership Fund on the Republican side, House and Senate Majority Pack on the Democratic side. Those are relatively new innovations, and those groups can also accept um, unlimited donations in ways that like the quote unquote official um, you know, committees, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the National Republican Congressional Committee, uh, or Cam- National Republican Campaign Committee, they can't accept. Um, but there was some, you know, one of the things in 82 that you, you see mentioned in recaps of that election is that, um, you know, the Republicans were coming off of 1980, which was this huge breakthrough election for them. They had won the Senate for the first time in 25 years. Um, you know, Reagan, of course, won a big victory in, the, in, in for the presidency and Republicans picked up almost three dozen House seats. And while Democrats still were in the midst of what felt like kind of a permanent majority at that time in the House, um, the Republicans had really made big strides to the point where, you know, back then the Democratic caucus was a lot more um, ideologically mixed than it is today. And so um, the Republicans felt like they had in some ways had sort of, sort of like effective control of the House because this, you know, the conservative coalition between conservative Democrats and Republicans could band together and pass things. And so that's like, you know, how the, like the Reagan tax cuts and other things got through. Um, so the Republicans were feeling very bullish about their position heading into 82. And there's some belief that that sort of early feeling dissuaded some good Democratic candidates from running. And also that the Republicans had some fundraising advantages that may have helped limit the eventual amount of seats that the Democrats ended up gaining that year. You know, this year would be different in that, in, in that I think that from the get-go, Republicans felt like they were going to have a good year. You know, one factor is that a lot of pretty strong Democratic House incumbents retired um, this cycle. And maybe if, you know, the Dobbs decision had happened in 2021 as opposed to 2022, and the Democrats had gotten that sort of enthusiasm jolt, maybe some of those Democrats would have hung around. Um, now, it's also a redistricting year, and that contributed to some of it. Um, 
but there are a few kind of uh, seats that I'd consider to be sort of low hanging fruit for the Republicans in part because they're open seats. If they had good incumbent Democrats had good incumbents in those seats, maybe it'd be a different story. Yeah. I think the other thing that you pointed out that is worth talking about is the question on issues, especially inflation. Um, you know, and, and inflation is also an issue this year, although with gas prices declining, it may not be as much of an issue, but you noted in your piece that, you know, Democrats were more effective at creating the counter argument to to inflation in 1978. Um, but the Democrats this time around don't really have the counter argument to that yet. You know, they're the focus is more on on abortion rights and the Dobbs decision. Yeah, there's this um, uh, article I, I quoted from um, Bill Sapphire, who, you know, the longtime New York Times columnist he passed away a little more than a decade ago, but um, he'd worked for Richard Nixon and was a, a you know, longtime conservative columnist at the Times. But he was very obviously frustrated that the Republicans had not done as well as he had hoped in 1978. And part of the story of that election was that the Republicans were running on this big tax cut plan um, that was that involved Jack Kemp at the time. He was a House member at the time, of course, later was a um, vice presidential candidate with uh, Bob Dole in 1996. Uh, and uh, so they were pushing for this tax cut and the Democrats kind of kind of got around on them in that they said, oh, well, the tax cuts are going to be inflationary. We should cut spending instead. And, you know, back then, again, the, the Democrats were more ideologically diverse in their House caucus. They were just able to get away with that kind of messaging. I don't know if that would necessarily work today. I do personally think that um, you know, the Democrats don't necessarily have a good sort of universal message on inflation. I mean, they, they did. Um, there was the, the passage of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act a few a couple of months ago, although that was more just like a revived version of and cut down version of Build Back Better, which, um, I, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily all that persuasive to say that it that it uh, dealt with inflation. And so, you know, again, I think Democrats have, have been able to change the subject in certain ways. Um, but I do think that the inflation message is still one where Republicans have a clear advantage in terms of if you look at polling, you know, who the public trusts to handle that kind of issue. And they're hammering that message because they feel like it's a it's a winner for them. And it very well may be. So I want to ask you one more question. Um, the New York Times has been reporting on Trump backed Republicans um, who have said that they're not going to commit to accepting this year's election results um, with another six Republicans ignoring are declining to answer their questions about embracing the November outcome. Um, and along, you know, alongside of this, uh, member Republican candidates are preemptively casting doubt on how their states count, count votes. Um, on the Senate side, we're seeing this in Republican Senate candidates, Ted Budd in North Carolina, Blake Masters in Arizona, um, Telly Shabaka in Alaska, and J.D. Vance in Ohio, um, all of whom have declined to commit to accepting the 2022 results. Um, I wonder if you, you know, I wonder what you think might be the implications of these Senate candidates declining to commit um, and what we should be doing to prepare for the contestation of electoral outcomes in the midterm elections. Well, the first thing I would say is just as a as someone who's like a consumer of election results and, and election information, just the, basically talking to the public out there like, you know, 
remember in 2020 that there, there, the, the vote count didn't go as fast as maybe people would have hoped. There are certain states in which the, the result counting will be delayed because of rules that are in place about how to process absentee ballots and those sorts of things. Um, I do think the primary season was generally better than 2020 about that, part because we were used to it and part because the pandemic was um, more in the rearview mirror. And so maybe fewer people were voting absentee. But um you know, unfortunately, it does create this sort of vacuum when you have an election and the results aren't immediately clear that um, people will sort of start complaining preemptively about the election. I mean, I think that's really what Trump did um, in 2020. And in fact, Trump had made it pretty clear, I think, in advance of the election um, that he was going to complain about the results. I mean, he complained about the 2016 results and he won the election. Um, he just sort of didn't want to admit that he lost the popular vote, which, you know, for the is, is essentially uh, um it doesn't necessarily mean anything, um, at least in terms of the, the formal mechanics of the election. Um, and I think some of this is just, you know, if people end up losing, it just is a can become this convenient sort of kind of sore loser thing for on the Republican side. But, you know, I do I do think it does erode public confidence to to, to some degree. Um, and so that that is um, uh, unfortunate. Um, I think, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the other thing is that, um, based on, you know, what the polls are telling us and what the campaign seem to think a lot of these Senate races really could come down to the wire. And if they do, that means that there might be recounts and there might be legitimate disputes about the election. I mean, there are, there is recourse for campaigns. If there's some, if there's a really close result, cl- really close means like three or four figures in terms of, or maybe even like two figures. I mean, there was a house race that was decided by six votes last time. Um, and those are, it's legitimate for candidates to pursue that. I'd say it's not really legitimate to, you know, if you lose by three or four points or something and say that the election was rigged or whatever, at a certain point, it just becomes kind of like crybaby stuff. So, you know, I, 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 I do worry about that. Kyle, as always, it's great to have you and your expertise. And thank you for sharing the lessons we should be thinking about and learning. podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.